Our special guest this evening, tonight, is Claire Bowditch. <laughs> so, Claire, here's your oh. microphone. Wonderful. I just want to sort of go home now and read Lee's book, frankly, but <laughs> it's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Let, let me do a little bit of introduction. Everyone knows who Claire is, but this is the formality of these events that we have to introduce you as well. But it's, so it's a, if, if you don't mind, I'll just do that. I'll pretend I'm not listening. <laughs> Claire, Claire Bowditch is a storyteller who lives in Melbourne with her husband, Marty, who happens to also be with us tonight. Special They're three guest. teenage children and a white grudel who's not here tonight and one lone surviving free-ranging guinea pig. Fuck, that's... She died. In between writing that... You check the Instagram feed on Grand Final Day. Passed away. It's horrific. I can't believe you brought that up, Steve. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Devastated. Sorry about that. Can we dim the lighting, please? This is, this is not, not going to go well at all. I can see this straight away. She's also, as it happens, a best-selling ARIA award-winning musician for Best Female Artist, a Rolling Stone Woman of the Year for her contribution to culture, a Logie-nominated actor for her part in the television series Offspring. That's the highlight, guys. That's the highlight. And a former ABC broadcaster. In her spare time, Claire does a lot of public speaking and event running. She uses humour and the collective terror of public singing. You didn't know what you were in for. Um, as tools to teach skills around courage and self-leadership, she's, she's the founder of Big Hearted Business, a project designed to both support creative people in their businesses and businesses with their creative thinking. As a musician, she has toured with lots of people, including Leonard Cohen, Paul Kelly, John Butler, Snow Patrol, and Gotcha. Not that I want to brag or anything. Right. Please welcome Claire to Milano. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. Isn't it always funny when you take sort of the ten best things that ever happened to you and pop them in a sentence and then, you know, <laughs> I get to go, yeah, that's me. But, the, the, yeah. It's well, that's all right. You've got a few of the things that weren't the best things to talk about well, now. that's right. I forgot about that shit. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I've been, I was actually struggling a bit as to where to start this conversation with you about your own kind of girl. Not because it's not fascinating, it is, but because, and I don't think you'll disagree with me, it's raw. It's raw here and it's raw there. It's pretty much raw everywhere. Raw, and it, raw everywhere, exactly. And, and it didn't seem like there was anywhere kind of particularly polite that I could kind of just dive into this. So well, let's I thought just get it best, over and done with. The best thing, exactly, <laughs> the best thing to do was just jump in. So when you were 20, You'd been working for a year in a call centre in Melbourne. You'd just had a nasty breakup with your boyfriend, Joffa, and you decided to go to London. You'd show him, you thought. Bloody show what was, him. What was going on for you around that time? Thank you for that question. I just want to do a little hands out. Who has actually had a chance to read the book or have a peruse? Fantastic. Great. So a couple of you. Thanks, Lee. That's because you very kindly interviewed me early on in the press. <laughs> and now I get the pleasure of reading your book very, very soon. I'm excited about that. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll speak from the perspective of most people haven't read it. And we don't want to spoil it for you, but we do want to. I want to give you this picture. So I had been a willing worker on organic farms up here in Mullaney. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Wolfen. And... Um, <laughs> when I was 19 and 
I didn't know that. There, there you go. go. Oh, good. A little bit of extra. And I'd loved it. I've worked at the Glasshouse Mountains and I'd worked here in town with a kind family who, you know, I suddenly magically developed asthma when I was on their farm and my job was to just shovel shit. And it was a wonderful job and honour. I was good at that job. <laughs> but luckily I was broke and I came home to Melbourne and I was offered a job at a call centre by a family friend. Good afternoon, Martin Dawes Telecommunications. My name's Claire. How can I help you? So I did that for a year and gradually over time my voice started developing into other things. Apparently I was quite good at the job and I had a special talent for customer service because I didn't know you were allowed to hang up on irate customers. I just, I'd never asked. And the only problem with the job was that I was a big girl and I had to wear a suit and I didn't know where you could find a suit in my size. Once I'd overcome that obvious hurdle, and decided I wouldn't get dreadlocks after all. I brushed my hair, you know, I presented myself well. My voice started developing in different ways and for fun, I started answering the phone thus. Good afternoon, Martin Dawes Telecommunications. My name's Candy Pounds. How can I help you, sir or madam? <laughs> it was clear, said my beautiful um, senior manager, Helen, that we love you but has it ever occurred to you that you might be destined for a career in the creative arts? <laughs> so quite the shock. I was very offended. How dare you? London became a call, calling for me. I had this terrible breakup with a wonderful, awful, wonderful human called Joffa. He was a human like me, and when that was realised and the, bra the breakup was quite fierce... I did what a lot of us do. I said that I was not coming back until I was thin. <laughs> I didn't tell anyone this secret story. I just decided that's how it would be, maybe slightly famous, you know. Thin or slightly famous would be fine. So I went off to London with high hopes um, and secret dreams and let's just paraphrase and say didn't end that well. Didn't I? What, what, yeah, I mean, I've got that thing. It didn't end well as the next line on my piece of paper. I mean, it wasn't all bad. You, no, you, you had some right. extraordinary experiences. You, I did. Um, you got to sing a couple of times, um, particularly at a place in Oxford, and discovered that you actually did have a voice that, as you yes. describe it, a voice who sings. You know, so it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't all bad. But you had this incredible sense of of not being good enough. So like many people in the room and in the world and this human experience, um, I too suffered horrifically as a child and kept that to myself. So um, I'm the youngest of five. We're all 18 months apart. And, you know, like decades on a rosary. <laughs> Perfectly spaced. And we were in a very, we were very loving, very normal family. We lived in the suburbs in Melbourne. We had a dog called Sam. We went to the local Catholic church. You know, the faith was kind of a, a central part of my life story. And when I was three years old, my sister Rowena, who was two years older than me, 18 months older than me, we shared a room and she became very ill, mysteriously ill, and so much so that she would have to go into hospital to be rehydrated and they would say, we don't know what's wrong with her. 
she's fine and she'd come back out again and she started missing more and more of prep and there's always this desperate hope that maybe it's something mild, maybe it's some silly allergy or something like that. And six months in, it became apparent it was not an allergy. So Rowena became a paraplegic, a quadriplegic, excuse me, and was admitted into the children's hospital in Melbourne, uh, put on life support, and our family were told that Rowena had a very rare form of MS, that's the best explanation they had, and that she would die soon. So my parents did what all parents try to do, which is they're holding the family together to the best of their ability. And miraculously, Rowena, you know, if you go into the intensive care ward in any hospital, some of you might be aware, you either, you, you know, it's two weeks, basically. You're either in there and you get better or you're transferred out. Or if you're in there for longer than two weeks, you don't come out. And darling Rowena, who was still full of life and my big sister and absolutely the boss, I was terrified of, you know, doing it wrong with her. And <laughs> she, you know, she was... Um, this rare case where she actually lived for two years in life support at the Royal Children's Hospital, which meant that a lot of our childhood was spent around her bed. And, you know, this was a normal for me. So this is the age of magical thinking. I'm three, four and five. She's five, six and seven. I've got older siblings. And um, this is the environment into which I grew up. One of the only things that I felt we could do or I could do was to make songs for her on tapes and give them to her to play overnight. And I think that's probably how and why I became a songwriter. But the gift of Rowena was that she was very much alive. Um, in fact, it didn't even occur to me that she was a quadriplegic until I was writing the book. I'd never said those words, that she couldn't move. And the story I told myself in there, which was a story of love and guilt, because grief can make vessels of all of us, of children and older people, is that there's something I could have done and should have done that would have saved her. And that ran inside me a loop of a secret story about how I was bad and wrong and I'd have to do better. And continuing with this story that about you as now as a 20-year-old, you know, this when you got to London and were by yourself yeah. and things were going bad, this yeah. kind of all came to a head, didn't Correct. it? Correct, yeah. So I was on the tube, and I don't want to spoil the story for you guys, but I'm just going to share the bits that I think. I wrote this story very definite, with a very definite purpose. It's not a rock and roll memoir. It's not about the famous people I may or may not have slept with, okay? <laughs> As I've explained to my husband before, that's not a story we need to tell right now. <laughs> it's a very, very short book anyway, not even... <laughs> Not even a sentence. So forget that. <laughs> I was in London um, and I wrote this. I knew I would write this story from the age of 21. Luckily, I had the story inside me for 20 years. So I'm in London and a friend collapses on the tube. We didn't have much conversational language around mental ill health in the 90s. I didn't realise that when my friend Phil collapsed and I tried to save him, and then from that moment onwards, and he was fine. He was just actually dehydrated from a big night out between you and I, you know. Um, but I didn't realise from that moment onwards, my, I, was, I kept myself awake at night. I couldn't seem to sleep and I was haunted by these memories of Rowena. I had no idea that that was a thing called PTSD. I had no idea the habits I had 
or anything to do with anything related to mental ill health. I just thought I wasn't coping, I was failing, I wasn't doing good enough. And that became a frightening story in me, which, you know, I'm that one in four, or let's just call it one in two, really, if we're going to be realistic, who then had an acute experience of mental ill health that I didn't think I'd recover from. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, I lost half my body weight, I came home thin. And do you think it mattered? So, I mean, it's not like you came home thin successfully. When you came home, (laughs) you kind of, you got got kind of almost wheeled onto the aeroplane, really, and not really, but metaphorically, and got picked up by your parents and taken back to the suburb of Sandringham where you lived. But things didn't even get better there, did they? So I had this fantasy that if I could just get myself home, because I had no idea that I was losing weight or that I was as unwell as I was, just that... I needed to get home. And I had that fantasy that we have. These stories that we know, essentially this is a memoir about the stories we tell ourselves and what happens when we believe them and whether or not we have the power to change them. So my story was all of my life, you know, and this this story of when I'm thin I'll be successful was based in a fact. It was based in my first diet when I was 10. It's not a story we make up ourselves, ladies. It's a story that we pick up from society around us. And there will be very few human beings in this room who haven't at some stage been on a diet, tried to change their body in some way. And we do that for a reason. We do that because we know the story of society, especially as women, increasingly as men. I'm the mother of both genders, so I can say this openly. The story that we pick up is as long as we can stay thin and keep our feelings to ourselves and not age, (laughs) we're going to fucking win. Okay, so I had that story, excuse my language, at the start of the audio book for this, my mother does a language warning. She goes, um, and uh, just a little warning for all of you, she's from Holland, just so you know, um, there is some naughty language in this book, and um, we were quite surprised by that. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yeah, it was a bit of a shock for the old lady. And then she cried. It was very, very funny. So Marty and I recorded the audio book at home. But this is all by way of saying, you know, we, I had these stories I was telling myself about success. And one of the stories, the survival stories, the lower brain stories that I told myself about success was if I got home, I'd be okay. And it was some shock to me that I got home and I was still experiencing these weird symptoms. I felt I was outside of my body. I was shaking all the time. I was terrified of noise. I was terrified of brightness. I couldn't go outside. I couldn't read the newspaper. I couldn't look at the television without nausea and I couldn't eat, you know. So here we go, right. My brain tells me, we're done, it's over. And there's another part of me, a higher brain, that's going, I know this isn't the end of the story, but I have no way out. And and this went on, what, for about... Six months to a year, or so. So that acute phase was two to three months. And but the kind of the, and we were talking about this in the green room before. Yeah. I mean, the, the kind of the, the point where you actually found a kind of doorway out of this was when your mother gave you um, that book by Claire Weeks. How many people have heard of a woman called Dr. Claire Weeks in this room? Just a little shout out. Okay, and how many times have you recommended her books to others? Yeah, a few times. <laughs> okay. 
there are some of us in this room who've bought multiple copies of her books because for me, um, and could, could everyone just excuse my slightly perimenopausal sweat that's going on up here? It's, it's an exciting night for a start, but I'm of a certain age and I may or may not have drunk a glass of champagne. Cheers to all of you. Cheers. Last night in Byron, they gave me a personal fan. Well... <laughs> they did, I felt a little bit like Fleetwood Mac. It's pretty great. Anyway, look, um, I'm an athlete and I'm sweating for my art, so that's fine. Um, so <clears throat> I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought my life was over. The story in my head was very dark and very loud. I didn't know then that that was the voice of my survival brain, my lower brain, my inner critic, who I would later name Frank. Okay, I had no concept yet. I just thought I'm going nuts and life's done for me. I, you know, I was, I was that, I told my story all, the, all my life that when I was thin, things would fall into place. And there I was, just a, a shell of a woman. And fortunately, and this is often what happens in these stories, if you're lucky, a family friend said to my mum, ah, I've been through what she's been through and I'm going to recommend a book. And it was called A Title that in any other circumstance I would have knocked to the floor and said, no, thank you, not for me. No, no, no. On the cover was a picture of an elderly lady looking a lot like the Queen with glasses in a frame. And the book was called Self-Help for Your Nerves. <laughs> oh, I thought, look, I was that desperate. I was ready to try anything. And I really couldn't read many books. You know, I was that unwell that... Even words was too much. So a friend, Faye White, had recommended perhaps I start reading children's books again and I started there. I didn't tell any of my friends what was going on. They all thought I was still in London, really. It was my mum's friends who stepped up. So I read this book and from the first page, it still makes me emotional to think about it because it saved my life. From the first page it said, you will recover. And then it's too much champagne. Jesus. <laughs> said, you will recover. And there's a name for what you're going through. And it was a lovely, simple umbrella term. It wasn't the specific name of a diagnosis or a thing that I'd have for the rest of my life. It was a weather pattern, effectively. She said, you are suffering from nervous illness. Well, I can handle that. Nervous illness, I'll cop that. She said, you will recover. And in that book, her simple technique which I would later call, well, the technique was as such. It was basically explaining the shaking, the obsessive thoughts, etc. This is all the product of a perfectly normal brain that's been agitated and oversensitized, and with practice you'll become well again. She said we had to face, accept, float, and let time pass. My brain was in a bit of a, I was pretty in love with acronyms at the time. So I decided I would faffle, face except float, let time pass. I would faffle my way to recovery. And thank God I gave it a crack. And slowly, slowly, I came back to myself again. Mm. And I promised myself that if I did recover, I would write this book. But I wouldn't do it till I was really, really fucking old. <laughs> like 40. <laughs> So that's what I said, and that's the truth of it. And so here we are. So it's a miracle to be here with you. Thank you.
Uh, I'm, I mean, gonna, I'm I think... just going to have a little rest after that. I'm quite exhausted, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, carry on, please. Okay. This happens to be the same chair that my therapist had. No, no, you know. <laughs> I love it. I mean, one of the, the things that's most powerful about what Claire Weeks is, is, is talking about, and interestingly enough, just a, a little anecdote here is that, that Lee Sales, who has written something on the cover of, of um, your own kind of girl here, saying what a fantastic book is, she's only written um, that on two books this year and completely separate from each other. The other book was the new biography of Dr. Claire Weeks that's just come out by Judith Hall. So, Which I hope you have in your bookshop because it's a beautiful book. There's, a, there, yes. there's some over the road at Rosetta Books. and it's, it's a Thanks, Rosetta. Um, and it was Lee Sales herself who, I mean, she said, you know, you, anyone watch Lee Sales on television? Oh, what a contained unit that woman is. I mean, just pure class. We're talking 11 out of 10. Like, you can't, you know. You, so he, <laughs> I get this email. We didn't know each other terribly well and it was very generous of her to agree to have the time to read this. But the email was effectively, oh, my F and G, you won't believe this. You know, I'm like, wow, she speaks slang like me. <laughs> and she said, I've just blurbed my friend Judith Hoare's book. Uh, Judith was a journalist for the um, Financial Review and Judith also fell in love with and was benef benefited from the work of Dr Claire Weeks and was compelled to write this biography as I was compelled to tell this story because Dr Claire Weeks wrote this book in 1962 in a time where she was the first woman in the history of Australia and the history of the Sydney U University of Sydney to get a doctorate. She was a soprano singer. She was a Renaissance woman. She was ahead of her time and she was derided as a quack because her theories were homespun. You know, at the time, psychiatrists were ruling the, ro the roost, always, always um, you know, top of the game, very learned, and she was dismissed as being too homespun. And in the meantime, this book, this rogue little book, became a bestseller in many countries, sold millions of copies because she actually practically helped people like me get out of that acute stage of panic. And I never had to go back because I found that beautiful, simple technique. So Judith had a, her own experience of this and was compelled to write the biography. So what an awesome coincidence, huh? Exactly. Now, one of the, apart from FAFL, right, the other, the other acronym that you came up with was FOF, right, which stood quite simply for fuck off Frank, right? That's right. Which, which is, so you'd named, this, you'd named this voice in your head that was being constantly criti critical of you as, yes. as Frank. And you had this way of kind of identifying him when, when, when that part of your brain that was kind of together enough to identify Frank could see him, you'd tell him to fuck off. I was curious about this because I too have a Frank, as probably most everybody in the room has. And I've, I don't tell him to fuck off. Because I've found that if I do, it gets his back up and he yeah. gets a bit stronger, right? Yeah, I understand. Um, and so, so I, I'm actually much more... Ten I tell him, to, you know, if you wouldn't mind going off and having a cup of tea. Go and have a cup of tea and have a bicky because I'm going to need you later. Yes. But right, yeah, now, right. Uh, right now, I don't actually need you at the moment. So what you're talking about there is a very mature and nuanced relationship. <laughs> Okay. This could be the secret of your marital success or your relationship success, okay? Shout out to you. Um, so for me, fuck off Frank or FOF is a technique that's incredibly useful. It was useful at first. So here's how it started. 
I'm reading a Jack Cornfield book because I'm looking for an alternative to Catholicism. So, you know, I, I, I know that in this crisis that I'm having, there is some aspect of my brain needing to upgrade. I needed an adult concept of grief. You know, I'd had a childhood, year, you know, the, the age of magical thinking, um, as it was called by a psychologist, Jean Piaget, you know, that had a very childhood uh, explanation of death and grief. And my breakdown, which my therapist, Ron, insisted on calling a breakthrough, I was like, no, <laughs> that's not going to work. But he was correct. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've heard many other... Brene Brown is another famous, famous example of someone who was told their breakdown was a breakthrough. We can make that true or not true. I made a call to make that true. And in that experience, I started reading a book by... Jack Cornfield, the Buddhist monk from New York. It was called A Path with Heart. And he had an um, exercise called Naming the Emotions. I was still in a very fragile state at this point. I was trying my hardest to sit still, but I was terribly agitated. So I'd try and sit there and name the emotions. We named them in threes, he said. Lust, lust, lust. Or anger, anger, anger. And for me, I'd just sit there and go, what the fuck, what the fuck, what the fuck? <laughs> like I had no concept of, of what I was feeling. It was all clustered, you know. I was still very much attached to the barnacle of my childhood grief and I hadn't pulled it apart yet. So Frank became an umbrella term for the feeling of foreboding, fear and so on and dread. And I would say, I tried as you did. I wasn't there yet. You know, I was trying to have a mature conversation. I'd say... I see, you know, I called him, I, I called him Fred, Fred, sorry, Frank. Um, Frank, because I didn't know anyone called Frank and because it stood, you know, it started with the letter F. You know, fear and the other F word, which I've said numerous times tonight, but I've decided to be polite now. Okay, so anyway, I, I, said, I started with, hey, Frank, I can see you there in the... And Frank would always win, the voice would always win. Now, what is Frank. It's our lower brain, our survival brain, that is built, inbuilt into us, that, that goes, uh, is inherited across the species. It's why we've evolved the way we have. Very useful when being chased by a crocodile. Not really that useful when I'm just a girl in Sandringham trying really hard to meditate. <laughs> so I started to try and speak with the higher part of me. You know, yeah. um, you know, you really really thank you for your message and um, but I'm just but the the I wasn't there yet so the, the other voice would always win 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 which is when I came across wow it's quite effective when I just say f off frank so the fof was really handy and sometimes it's handy still when I'm slightly afraid of getting on a plane or when I'm just about to go on television and the doubt comes up, it's quick and effective. But it, you're right, it's not where you want to end up. Mm. You know, my, my relationship with Frank is quite gentle now. I think mine's more... I mean, I'm, I'm prob I don't want to take any kudos for, for being Please. sophisticated. I, do, I, I just don't... It's, <laughs> no, it's, more, it's, it's, more, it's, more, it's more when I'm writing because when I'm writing, that's when the critic is really, really heavy. So I mean, know, can, we, can we say this collectively to the audience? Is there any... If you like, well, I don't have a Frank. Is there any better way of working out whether or not you have the voice of self-doubt than to try and write a book? I mean, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, exactly. I'd sit, you know, Pascal, sit in a room by yourself. If we could do that, then the world would be solved. But I realise, just looking at my clock, that it must be time for a song. Oh. What do you think? I think it's a wonderful suggestion. 
Can't hear that. Well, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Look, thank you, darling. Look, it's we've we've ch I've chatted a bit long. I'm sorry about that. No, no, that's what we're here for. Okay. Um, moving right along. Eventually, fuck off, Frank works a bit. You know, Faffle works a bit. Yeah. 
you go off with some friends to something called the Confest up on the Murray River. Yeah. yeah. Anyone and here been nude with other people in a group? <laughs> great. Yes. I just exposed my belly button. That was as far as I could go, but it was a great time. Um, I, was at, um, I was at the Colo Festival where Jim Cairns was. With the, there was about... Oh, a thousand people walking around naked for four days. It was wonderful quite a, feeling. Quite a, quite a, well, quite extraordinary. Well, I tell you what, being greeted at the gate at Confess, it was on a whim. I was 22. I'd had the courage to apply to art school and was greeted at the gate by a wonderful, leathery old chap <laughs> who I later was told his nickname was Long Schlong Silver. <laughs> And that was a wonderful... I wonder, I wonder why. A suitable... Um, oh, I kept my eyes right on his eyes. Like just eye contact the whole time. Don't look down, don't look down. And I was still quite sensitive, so I said, um, could, would you mind directing us to the um, quiet part of the camping area? And he did. Very kind guy. So, but there... there. He can be naked and kind. Come on, Mulaney. <laughs> Oh, you, oh, you, you, um, you met a guy called John. I did. You know those sliding doors moments, and I'm not talking the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, okay? You haven't seen that here. Good. Oh, well, you have. Okay, well, it's not, let's not mention it again. Anyway. So I had been writing songs like that. I'd been tucking them under my bed, putting them on tape, cassette tape at the time, terrified of what might happen if anyone heard my terrible... Terrible, shameful, unfinished, true songs. But there was a part of me, that higher creative brain that exists in all of you here tonight, that said to me, what if? What if I met the right person? What if I started a band? You know, what if these songs could come true, these little sketches? There I am in the chai tent. I'm just looking for a quiet time, okay? Just a cup of chai. I want to read my book the wind blowing in, all's going well. And then in walks this chap who looks slightly like a young Elvis, yelling at the top of his voice along with another friend. They're looking for someone called Amber. Are you Amber? They say, I'm not Amber, no. In my heart, I feel annoyance. How dare these guys come and ruin my peace? Then they sit down and one of them picks up a guitar, a chai tent guitar. It's out of tune and regardless, he makes a song that something in my heart goes, oof. I keep telling myself how annoying it is <laughs> that they're making noise while I'm trying to read this terribly interesting book. And at a certain point it twigs that it's not really annoyance, it's terror and it's longing. I want to sing with them. So I do what all of you must do moving forward with your big fat dreams. And I went and sat on the outside of the circle and I went... Oh, Yoko, oh, Yoko, really quietly. John, he wasn't Elvis, he was John, a guy called John, and he said to me afterwards, I heard you singing, you've got a lovely voice, do you want to sing some more? So we did, we worked out, we had musical tastes that were in common, we sang together some more. He said, have you written any songs? And for once in my life, I said, yes, I have. Every part of Frank said, just to be clear, Frank is not a real human. Frank does not pop out and go, <laughs> no, don't sing the songs. Frank is the voice of self-doubt in my head. Said, don't do it. This is dangerous. You know, just play it cool. 
But I said, yes, I do. And I played him a song called Empty Pockets. At the end of the song, he looked at me and uh, he said, do you want to start a band? And even though every part of me went, don't do this, he could be a psycho. <laughs> I said, yes. They said, what's your name again? And I went, oh, he really could be a psycho. So I gave him a fake name. <laughs> <laughs> but I gave him my real phone number. That's the point. And when he called later that week and said, bring over your songs, I said yes. And even though I had to faffle my way through, I went and I showed up. And in that experience of showing up at John's house, he lived two streets away, of course. Um, and we played together and we sang just right. And he said, um, I'm going to introduce you to another of our bandmates. You know, we hadn't even discussed how many were in the band. I didn't care. Just glad I wasn't having a panic attack, right? Nag Champa was pretty thick in the room. It was... The door opened and a guy ducked his head in the room and in walked John's housemate, Martin W. Brown. The tall guy. And I just want to say, perhaps this is the turning point where my life got better. John ended up marrying, uh, effectively marrying, uh, my best friend, Deepa. And I ended up with Marty and together we've got five children, all thanks to saying yes to that one little tri-tent experience. Thank you. Now, uh, look, I've got a whole lot more questions here, but I think, you know, I'm looking at the time, I think it's probably fair to give the audience a chance to ask some questions. Probably well, do we, can, we, can, we, can we bring up the lights on, on the side here? And we've got it, we are recording this, uh, so if you wouldn't mind waiting till the mic comes to you to ask your question. And if you wouldn't mind also, um, uh, asking a question rather than making any statements, if that's at all possible. So, question marks on the end no of offense, your... No offence, guys. <laughs> you can make short statements as long as they end in a question, OK? If the um, statement's in the vicinity of, I like you very much, on to my question, that's fine. Absolutely fine. OK, we've got one straight away here. That's very good, thank you. I like you very much. <laughs> <laughs> now you. on to my question. Yeah. You can really, ask me anything. What's really your name? Gail. Gail, okay. You live in town? Uh, down at the coast. You made a trip to be here. I did. Welcome, okay. Gail. Thank you. This is really shallow. Was John nude when you met him? <laughs> <laughs> and you? It's a wonderful question. <laughs> no. He wasn't. <laughs> he was completely clothed, fully clothed. Yeah, I, things might have been different if he was very naked. Due to my anxiety, I was still quite sensitive to certain things. I remember just being quite like, it was a big deal for me just to sit on a pillow that may or may not have had festy toe jam on it before me, you know. So if John had been nude, might not have turned out that way. But there was plenty of time for that later, you know. Just joking, guys. I told you, we got together with my best friend. I'm just sitting here taking there's a There's a girl with a hand up there. We're I'm just taking a micro-sleep. It's made a big night. <laughs> uh, wake up. <laughs> Hello, babe. What's your name? I'm Ellie. Hi, Ellie. <laughs> Welcome to the hood. Thanks, Claire. We met first uh, yeah. when we were in our early 20s. 
Um, back you in haven't the, aged. Yeah, you either. <laughs> um, so You're an then, author as well. There's a number yeah. of authors in this room. How do you remember that? Do you live? Because of course I remember. You create. It was an incredible book, you know. Oh, thank you. And now recovery stories have a lot in common. They, I, I had no idea how much they have in common until I read your book on the weekend. And well done. It is, it's truly stunning. It's really beautiful. Thanks, Ellie. Um, you are. <laughs> so uh, over the last... Sorry. Oh, can I just say, though, for a long time I thought your name was Eli before we met each other. <laughs> My son's now called Eli. He could have been called Ali. So I anyway. thought you named him after me. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been in there, you know. Anyway, sorry. Back sorry. to you. Over to is, your, is your book for sale at Rosetta? No, no, not at is all. Is it no. still in print? It is, yeah. Ellie's Wings, it's called. Wow. E-L-I apostrophe, yes, Wings. Wonderful book. I don't want to, you know, you will tell your own story, but for anyone who's struggling in what area would you say? All of the areas you've written about. Correct. <laughs> if we sell out tonight, you know where to go, okay? <laughs> also, before you might buy my book, make sure you've got Lee's book. She's the local, you know, she's your local author. And I know her book's been out since August, so many of you do have copies. But anyway, that's an important point. Sorry, I'll, I'll hurry on. So, um, <laughs> sorry. I'm, I'm waiting for the question. Hold on. This is my fault, not yours. Okay, it was me. Okay, hit me. My Frank is yelling at me right now, so I'm going to spit this out. Um, so, since we met, obviously, you've had an amazing, eclectic, very diverse, creative career, which has just been truly impressive to watch. But you've also had a really beautiful personal journey with your family and your beautiful children. I've also got kids now too, yeah. one who's been diagnosed with anxiety. Mm. I'm just wondering, um, how do you, given your personal experience and um, your personal struggle with mental ill health throughout your life, yeah. you've got a line in the song Lucky Life that I loved, and I loved before I was even a mother, and it was, I will help you build your armour, but you will have to wear it by yourself. Mm. And I just wonder, how do you empower your children? How do you almighty go about armouring them up and helping them manage the world as it is today? Well, I'm sure you're aware, Ellie, that my children are perfect and <laughs> I've never experienced any of these issues. But um, theoretically, Ellie. So um, if we look back, we can see in my history something I didn't know, which is quite clear. I had acute anxiety from a very young age um, and... This may or may not travel in families or so on. It might be something we inherit. It may be epigenetics. It's a complex little cluster of reasons why the anxiety voice is turned on early in some of us and not in others. What I know now is that anxiety voice, as we were sort of loosely saying before, is actually pretty useful. Okay, and if we can learn to frame it, you know, this, this technique that I had of FOF, um, my friend Dr Charlotte Keating, who I met on ABC Radio, informed me that this is actually a pretty common, straightforward cognitive behavioural therapy technique to externalise the inner critic. And it was written about famously in Jenny Schaefer's book, um, Living, With Ed, Living Without Ed. So, you know, should I have had children who at any point experienced anxiety? What I would have done, um, and what we do do, is we teach them really clearly that technique of being aware of the stories we're telling ourselves and what happens when we believe them. 
We normalise the experience of wanting to belong and needing to belong and that loud voice inside us that tells us that we need to be something other than we are in order to belong. We encourage them to externalise their inner critic and we remind them that they have a higher brain that can talk back to that anxiety. All the same things that I've used in my own experience of it, I pass on to you know my children, my children, my friends' children, and so on. But the main thing to remember is we have a really great brain, okay? And there's nothing so unusual about it being triggered into anxiety in this world at this time, and that they will recover. I talk about storms in this book, storms and other weather patterns. We so often fail to understand that, you know, the whole reason I could write the songs the way I did is because of that love that I felt and that doubt that I felt. In every story of mental ill health, there is another story that we're only just starting to be able to tell about our strength and our wisdom and so on, that the, the, the clouds and the sunshine are all intertwined somehow. So I go to quite a bit of length in here to just open up that conversation a little bit. Is that helpful at all? My work here is it's, done. <laughs> Thank you for the question. Trine, there was a young lady just in front of you there somewhere. Hi. Hi, buddy. What's your name? Chloe. Hi, Chloe. Are you from in here too? You I from... came from the coast. Okay. Thanks yeah. for making the trip. Oh, anything for you. We, hey, babe. We were having a chat before about why has there been a tardy start, start tonight? It's because my, my crew have come from all over. So sorry to the locals <laughs> for whom we... Started late. <laughs> okay, hit me up, Chloe. What is it? How can I help? You've been writing songs for a number of years that kind of delve into the same issues as you talk about in the book. I was wondering if it's different to put yourself out there in a very vulnerable way. Do you find it scarier with the book? Speaking as somebody who deals with anxiety issues as well, mm. I know it can be hard to put yourself out there. Mm. Do you think that it's different in a book as opposed to a song? So easy in a, in a song, really, because like you've got a You've got, you've got your live show, you've got fireworks, you've got glitter guns that go off. You've got ways of hiding inside your songs. I don't really, guys. I just made that up. But songs you can hide behind and a book I couldn't. I didn't want to. The only useful part of my story was to talk about those bits so that we could understand um, how it's possible to change the stories we tell ourselves. So just in short, I found writing songs a lot easier I found writing a book a lot harder. I'm very glad I did it. We've got a lady right on the other side of the hole here. I feel like it's, I should put on some, let's do a little bit of hold music. I say, if you can speak, you can sing. So let's go. Beautiful. <laughs> Claire, I really love the image on the front of your book and I was wondering if there's a story that goes with that image. Oh, it's just photoshopped. <laughs> <laughs> just joking. Yes, there is. My sister Anna is quite a well-known photographer now. She photographs for Home Beautiful. She does portraits of all sorts of famous people. She always had an eye for a story. She likes to say I was her original muse. <laughs> and, um, she was in the backyard with a mate, as were uh, her mate, and I had that bubbly character. I always liked to keep things up. You know, I was brought up in this home where I really felt my role was, um, you know, I started life as an entertainer early, 
we needed some joy. I knew how to bring that to the party. So there I am. I used to call it my jiggly little body. I was quite happy in it most of the time. Um, it was a shock to me that the world had thoughts about my body. But on this day, at this moment, I'm in my backyard and I'm copying one of my sister's friends who's next to me going like this. And um, that's pretty much the spirit animal that exists in every live show. So that's the story of that photograph. Now, when I had the good fortune to be effectively commissioned by Ellen Arnold to write this story, my publisher, Kelly, um, was amazingly generous. And unlike most authors, she said, um, you know, we chatted about the book cover. So many authors don't get a choice in the book cover. Um, and she said, you know, send me a series of photos. And there was about 10 photos. And as soon as she saw that one, she said, it's that one. And I had to agree. So yeah, my sister Anna took that photo and she also took all the other photos in the, in the book. Yeah. We've got time for one more question because, yes. I'm only going to do one more because Claire has said she'd like to have another song at the end. Okay? I so would. we're Is running okay? out of time, okay? All right, good. And then I'm going to sit over here with a glass of fabulous champagne. I'll reapply my lipstick and I'll sign anything you bring, basically. Okay, one Where last question. Whether she's written it or not. That's right. <laughs> Hi, Claire. Thanks for coming to um, the what it feels like to be the cultural desert of the Sunshine Coast. Are sometimes. you kidding? <laughs> this is such an honour. Wait until I go tell Trent Dalton I've been here too. <laughs> Um, it's a bit of a daggy question. But sure. I'm What's just, your name? Sorry, tell me your name. My name is Marion. Thanks, Marion. Yeah. I just wanted to know about your writing process. For someone who hadn't written a book before, did you just sit down and pump out a book or how did it happen? Yes, I did, yes. <laughs> Marion, have you heard of a thing called gin? <laughs> okay, good. So... My publicist, Isabel, is thinking, okay, we're going to do a recap tomorrow morning on my Instagram stories. Isabel is giving a running commentary of the tour. But no, here's, here's the reality of it for me. Um, I stalled on this book. I have a comfortable life. I wasn't sure how these stories would go down. I didn't want to compromise my children's anonymity in the world. I had to decide that this story would end before, um, you know, would end, where it would end. That took a while to know where the right place to end it was. Um, and it took a while to work out how I could tell a story like this, which is human and riddled with all the human things, including the sadness. How could I tell that and um, make sense of it and make it useful? Because I didn't feel there was any point of writing my particular book without that element. So um, what you do is you go down to your local department store. You buy some fluffy slippers and a pair of pyjamas. You put them on and you leave them on. <laughs> <laughs> you walk your children to school in that outfit. <laughs> you ask your friends to drop off meals. And then, lo and behold, a book is written. <laughs> so it really took about two years. I left my job on radio to write this book. I knew I couldn't do it half-heartedly. I went to therapy three times a week at certain points of writing this book, and that's no joke. I got all the help that I needed, the support I needed. I had the good fortune to marry the right man <laughs> you know, who could love me through this process. And um, it was hard, and I'm, again, I'm glad I finished it. It feels worth it.
At the end of the book, I've got a list of resources and I've also got a, a note on pleasure. And I have been forgetting to say this, but um, on my website, if you want the playlist that accompanies this book, it's there for you. And there's also my mother's Dutch apple tart recipe, which is famous. Sometimes you just need a little break, you need a little chill, a cup of tea and a bit of Dutch apple tart. So. So feel free to go there too. Can we talk about Instagram later? Because why the hell don't you have Instagram? That's all. I've tried to tag you in so many Instagrams. Clearly you don't need it. You fill the room anyway. We're going to have a little Instagram lesson later on today. Are you guys all on Instagram? Okay. Some of you hate Instagram. Yes? If you want to see behind the scenes of what happened in the warm-up, the coaching session that Isabel gave me earlier today... It's all there for you. And if you're on my Instagram, you know that this song has traditionally made me cry. Thank you, Howie. So I changed it a little bit. I don't play it on piano anymore. Um, and if you know me on Instagram, you know I now play it here. And if you know me on Instagram, you know what a pleasure and honour it has been for me to be here with you tonight. Thank you again so much for having me. All right, so I'll see you after for a cheers, but for now, the title track from my new book, Your Own Kind of Girl. It goes a little something like this. If you need to go home to your babysitter, go. I don't mind. It's fine.
Regardless of the equipment, regardless of the things against us, regardless of the circumstances or the nails, we carry on. Chocolate, you've got chocolate, Gonna be your own kind of girl. Thank you, Howie, and good night.